Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's episode, we want to cite Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee, who is a world-class authority on not just deals, but many things from the medieval world. And we want to cite uh, his work because he has put a lot of time and research into the story that we're going to explore today. You can also find his website, which uh, we mentioned in the episode, historiacartarum.org, if you would like to learn more about his past, present, and future work. Hey, and as we're going through this episode, we've collected a bunch of research from a bunch of different outlets. And what we didn't realize is that much of the writing that's done on this topic comes directly from the research that Dr. Greenlee has performed. And two of the main articles we'll be pulling from today are from HistoryExtra.com. The article is Fishing for Gold, How Eels Powered the Medieval Economy. And another one is on HistoriaCartarum.org, and that's the Eel Rents Project. So once again, uh, thank you so much. The citations are important. And much of what you will hear in today's episode comes directly from the work of Dr. Greenlee. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. We've got our super producers, Casey Pegram. Got our super producer, Max Williams. Live and direct here, my uh, good pal and co-host, Noel Brown, is on Adventures. We'll be returning soon. I am Ben, and I am not going into today's episode alone found out that my very old uh, dear friend, my ride or die, Matt Frederick himself, is into the concept of this episode. Uh, no spoilers yet, but Matt, there you are. How's it going, man? Oh, hello. <laughs> I'm back. Hi, everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Can we get a round of applause in there, Max, for... 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. unnecessary. <laughs> unnecessary. You know what? Why not? While we're while we're throwing Max under the under the producer bus. Max, give yourself a round of applause for that applause cue. I okay. didn't know. I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I didn't know either. Uh, so, so Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, hit you up uh, a little uh, a little while ago, like yesterday, off air, and asked you about your position on eels in general. Right? Yeah. Ben straight up slapped me in the face with an eel right before this with the question. <laughs> no, I don't, that doesn't work. Uh, but yes, yes, this is all coming together very quickly. But Ben, I have to tell you, I couldn't be more excited to discuss this topic with you today. Yes, yes. Now, just before the three of us started recording today's episode, Matt, you had a question for Max. What was that question? Oh, yes. How do you feel about sushi in general? That's the first question. So in general, yeah, all about it. Totally will do it. Okay, okay. Is that like Publix sushi? Is that high-end sushi? Any sushi? I don't really have much standards. I mean, I'll eat like, I'll go lower than Publix. I don't know how much lower it is really than Publix, but I'll go there. Okay. I mean, I don't care. Got it. You heard that quick trip. Uh, Max is there ready for your sushi. Uh, <laughs> but okay. But what kind of thing do you order? Is eel on the menu for you when you get sushi? Ooh. So it's been a long time. I mean, you know, you go to Kroger, you go to Publix, you get like the one that's been sitting there for a couple of days. I mean, it's usually just like a California roll, like that they might put something else in there also. Like, you know, it's usually just like slim pickings. But if I'm getting some nice sushi, yeah, I'll give me the weirdest thing you have. I mean, to call back a previous episode, I mean, I'll do a cricket sushi roll. I'll do it. Whoa. Ooh, crunchy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, dare to dream. I'm on board with this. I think we're all kind of sushi fans. What about you, Matt? You a, Are you a sushi guy? 100%, but only if it's revolving. If the uh, sushi is revolving in some way, then I'm down. If it's just, about. yeah, yeah. If it's just static sushi, not interested. Yeah, yeah, because it's supposed to be fresh. And what's more fresh than watching it roll toward you on a belt? Yeah, we we are big fans of sushi. Um, I'm also a big fan of unagi specifically, which is, you know, the Japanese freshwater eel. And today's episode is about eels. We got there. Segway. Uh, That's right. British eels. British eels, yes. This ties into a weird dream of mine, an ambition, I would say, uh, that I, I... God, I want to do at some point in life. But today's episode is also in a weird way about finance. You see, mm -hmm. once upon a time, fellow ridiculous historians, the British used to pay their rent, not with money, but with eels. E-E-L-S, eels. And other things like firewood and eggs. <laughs> oh, it's it's really cool. This is, this is super cool. It makes me... Kind of wish we were still there to an extent because I've got lots of just things around the house I need to get rid of. If I could if I could pay rent with kids books, my God. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yes, that, that is what we're discussing today. The economics of a, almost a, it is a barter system mm -hmm. or it's uh, 
it's so weird to imagine a living and or dead creature as a piece of currency. Yeah, yeah. And as we know, as our uh, fellow listeners of both Ridiculous History and the show you and I created, Stuff They Want You Know, are aware, currency has been any number of bizarre things in the past, from peppercorns to giant rocks. And while we originally found this via HistoryExtra.com, it turns out the vast majority of the research in this episode is the work of one person, Dr. John Wyatt Greenlee, who is again, the expert on this fascinating story. I mean, let's look to him for examples. We've got a cool example to get us into this. Way back in 1194, there were some monks at a place called Ramsey Abbey in Huntingdonshire, and they needed a way across a local fin, F-E-N. So there was this landowner whose name was Ralph Tuberville. That's correct. There were people named Ralph in the 1100s. Uh, so Ralph had this road and he said, I'm willing to lease this. And it was an elevated causeway. It was pretty dope as road construction went at the time. And so for the right to use this road, the monks at Ramsey Abbey said, okay, Ralph, we'll pay you. And once a year, we're going to kind of pay you a rent on this road. But it's not going to be in. Uh, it's not going to be in terms of what we would consider currency today, was it? No, it would be one thousand eels per annum, as well as two pounds each of pepper and ginger, and a pair of scarlet trousers. Mm, that was specifically for the man of Tuberville. <laughs> It's just the weirdest addition there. You know, what were the negotiations like? You know, did they start with the eels and then they they eventually, you know, they tacked on scarlet trousers <laughs> to like, like seal the deal? And also, how many pairs of red pants do you need? Yeah, it was Christmas time. And, you know, they just thought it would really go with what Ralph had going on on the upper part of his body. They just thought the red is just going to look nice with that green tunic he had going on. Yeah, Tuberville was all about the vibe. Uh, whether or not he was a clothes horse, we know that when he passed away, this same Abbey later renegotiated the deal. And Ralph's widow was not as into pants as he was. She did not want any more scarlet trousers. Instead, she wanted half a mark in coins, 60 cartloads of firewood, but, as Greenlee notes, she still wanted those 1,000 eels, which is wild. Do they get them all at once? Is it like... No. They, no? What do you do with 1,000 eels at once? Like, even if you're... <laughs> I mean, if you're one person or a family, even if you got 12 kids, 1,000 eels, there's not a great way in 1194 to keep that stuff good. <laughs> right. Unless you're converting it to, to fertilizer immediately. Mm -hmm. It was like... Eel, the, the Bitcoin of its day, you could convert it to other currencies. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there is a drying technique that I just don't know about. Well, I don't know. Like salted, jellied eel kind of thing. Well, <clears throat> well here's, the, here's the weirdest part. It was commonplace from like at least the 10th century onward. People in England, all, all across England, paid some taxes in terms of eels, living eels or dead eels. And that's because coins were not as common. And as coins became a little more common, these eel rents did decline. But they didn't decline for centuries. And this is where our story takes place. Because nowadays, you know, I was thinking about this, guys. During the pandemic, 
we saw a lot more people carrying a lot less cash. And do you guys remember when places like Home Depot and other stores literally had signs up about a coin shortage? Did you guys see any of that? They still have that in my area. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't been to Home Depot in a minute. It probably should be. But yeah, I, I do remember that coin shortage completely. Yeah. yeah, there's not enough coin. Well, in medieval times, there also was not enough coin. Um, and there just wasn't. These are precious metals being pressed, sometimes individually, sometimes in mass, but there aren't that many coins that are metal going around. So, as Dr. Greenlee found, a lot of places, a lot of landlords would accept these things that they would call in-kind payments or in-kind rent. So, it could be eels. It could be other things. It could be ale, beer, lagers. Th those are really popular. Eggs, grain, really anything that a household could make use of. And firewood was also very, very common. That firewood is a whole other episode, which mm -hmm. could we could continue into the Americas, into the times of you know the 1600s and prior to that, when you could pay all of your rent with firewood just because of the harshness of the weather and the the winters and the nights. Anyway, yeah. we're talking about eels today. Yeah, we're talking about eels. Eels were not some especially rare animal at this time. They were, in fact, incredibly plentiful. And the lords of England, the rulers at the time, they wanted their cut. They wanted their vig, you know? So... <laughs> If you look at if you look at the 1086 Domesday survey, you'll see that they had more records of rent being paid in eels than they did of rent being paid in corn. And like this was nuts. If you lived in the village of Harmston, for instance, in Lincolnshire, then your community collectively would owe Earl Hugh of Chester 75,000 eels per year. I like that you said per annum though, Matt. That sounds so much classier. I I sure. Yes. <laughs> but, but listen to this. Again, we're talking crazy numbers here. $75,000 to old Earl. But by the end of the 11th century, there were more than 540,000 eels being paid as rent in England per annum. Yeah, so yeah, see per annum. It's just smooth. You're a smooth guy. <laughs> so landlords, what did they do with these eels? Well, they ate some of them, but it goes mm -hmm. back to the earlier question Max, Matt, and I had, which is, what do you do? What do you do with all these eels? Dr. Greenlee explains how a landlord would kind of cycle these out. So let's go back to those Ramsey monks. They had tenants, and their tenants collectively gave them more than 70,000 eels every year. And the monks couldn't eat all of those. They were they were probably at some point sick of eating eel, if you can believe it. Max can't believe it. He's a big eel fan. And <laughs> and uh and what they would do then is they would use the eels that their tenants gave them as a way to pay for stuff they needed at the monastery. Like they sent a thousand eels a year to Ralph and later his widow. And then they agreed to pay 4,000 eels each spring to Peterborough Abbey for the right to take stone from a quarry nearby that the abbey controlled. So eels could be literally money that you eat, which I, I feel like, I feel like it's crazy that it worked yeah. that long because if you could just eat, like if you could just eat a greenback right now, the world would be a very different place. 
That's very true. And a greenback is, oh, uh, you're talking about the paper slash fabric stuff that we use as currency. Yeah, the coupons. Got it. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> so. Literally eating money. I, yeah, I guess that's the same thing. Well, that that this is a good way to get into talking about something we already brought up. These are not fresh eels, usually. Usually. These are not the ones that are coming straight out and they were just speared. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah. Um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah. I, I just remember. It was my dad's. I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car. I'd get that car. And I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody. Like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was, a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, <laughs> I said El Camino and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. 
You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. As Professor Greenlee points out, and he's literally the world's foremost expert on this, it wasn't as if people were stockpiling massive pools of live eels. These are actually preserved eels. We, we kind of joked about, you know, a drying technique. But yeah, salt and thyme and uh, <laughs> smoking, drying, all that kind of stuff was very common. It was a common practice to do that to these eels and then trade those. So you, you actually would have, God, I'm imagining chests in mm-hmm. some wealthy landlord's house, just chests of eel mm-hmm. uh, that are required. <laughs> it's like the medieval MTV cribs where someone's mm-hmm. taking a tour of the Abbey and then some guy who is like the celebrity, you know, host of, of the Abbey is, is like, and this is our eel room, stacks on stacks on stacks, or should we say sticks on sticks on sticks? Because when the eels were dried and preserved, they were bundled into sticks that would be about 25 eels per stick. So that was the definition of balling. How many eel sticks do you have? You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, so, I'm so sad that there wasn't some equivalent of poetry or hip-hop bragging about the amount of eels people had. I wonder if yeah. it would hold up. I'd listen. I'd listen to that mixtape once. Oh, dude. Yes, that would be in my car right now. I wonder if they if they had like quarter sticks. That was a quarter stick. <laughs> uh, and just it's five eels just kind of wrapped up with some kind of maybe red trousers. I don't know. There we um, go. It's really weird, man. We know this because there's an historical record of who paid who what and what that currency was. And the currency was sticks, right? That's how you would know. It's a Mm -hmm. stick of eel. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a quote here from an article on Dr. Greenlee's Eel Rent Project on his website, Historia Carterum, where he walks us through the difficult business of calculating the worth of an eel. X mill owed Y Abbey Z sticks of eels per year. But really, what, what does that mean? And then there's another thing here when you're talking about taxes, because, you know, in medieval Europe, as everywhere else, you always had to pay the king in in that case or the rulers a little bit of that eel off the top. How much eel did they get off the top? And how do you figure that out when you're dealing in sticks of eels? Yeah, this is actually beyond the capacities of our great inflation calculator. So we're going to refer to some excellent work by Historia Carterum. Here we go. When we try to make an educated guess about how much, you know, cold hard scratch an eel was actually worth, we could see that a single eel translates to about 36 to 72 cents in 2021 dollars today. So a stick of eels would equal something between $9.06 and $18.11 in the modern day. So 
Historia Carterum argues that if we take those two measures as kind of our spectrum of high and low-end price points, then we get a window of understanding that we didn't have otherwise. And that gives us an even better sense of just how many eels were moving in this weird dried eel market. So there's a flip side to this. Let's let's try to think of what what we in the modern day could use to understand the value of eels. And Dr. Greenlee has a great answer here as well. If you are a friend of Jeff, which is our euphemism for Amazon Prime subscribers, then you'll be happy to, well, I don't know if you'll be happy to know, but it, <laughs> it, you'll be fun at parties when you say an Amazon Prime membership is like, what, $119. If you paid in eels, that would only be about 165 to 330 eels. So just six to 13 sticks. Man, that's pretty great. <laughs> uh, on, a, on a yearly basis, that's not that many eels. <laughs> just kidding. Imagine how much, how much actual work that would take for an individual to go out to a river and catch 330 eels. <laughs> like that's a lot of days and hours and just to get your Amazon Prime membership. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Matt. It's it's weird because now I'm I'm going to spend the weekend, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to spend the weekend thinking like how much is this in eels? I'll uh, you know, I'll, I'll be at the local bookstore or something and then yeah, I I might try it. I might just try it. See if I can I could pay in a in in a stack of eels. <laughs> That's really good. I idea. just see the headline already. Like local land of man arrested for trying to shove eels down a man's pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you guys don't understand history, he said. <laughs> so You know what I just thought of, guys? What's we that? have we have Forgotten to take into account the smell. We didn't even think about the smell. Everybody's got eels up in their house, in a chest somewhere, on sticks, in a room. They're carrying them around to pay for rent. What is, what does it smell like out there? Success, bro. Money. <laughs> the, the, the fishy smell of some eels. Uh, would be a dead giveaway that the person you were talking to is just bawling out of control. Uh, so, uh, yeah, well, you know, smells in general were treated differently on, on a cultural yeah. basis back then, right? This is kind of pre-deodorant. It does make you wonder what that did for the, uh, I don't know how to put this lightly, the sex drive of everybody uh, waltzing around. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a segue for sure. But nicely done, Matt, because I think the church comes into play here. You know, uh, the church is one of the biggest authority figures at this time, and they are historically very concerned with sex and very concerned with Lent, L-E-N-T. Yes, gonna, it's that Lent rent. Uh, <laughs> we're just going to be rhyming all over the place today. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the species of the British uh, river eel. Yes. So um, most of the eels that end up being used in this old rent situation are caught in autumn. That's good to know, right? And the reason for that is because there's a yearly downstream migration. And back to Dr. Greenlee's article for History Extra, Fishing for Gold, How Eels Powered the Medieval Economy. 
okay, that are that are occurring in autumn. So lots of them are being caught. But the rent wasn't due until the start of Lent, so late winter or spring. So everybody's catching, drying, salting, doing whatever they do to those eels to get them on the sticks. Um, and the reason why rent was due at this time, because there was, uh, during Lent, you were prohibited from eating meat. Okay, and this is very important. So if you caught any fresh eels, you can't eat them. You got dried eels. They're still good for eating, but you can't eat them because you're not allowed to. So the church understood this explicit connection between meat, or they they believed there was an explicit connection between eating meat and um, carnitas. No, I'm just joking. Um, <laughs> the ca- carnal urges, maybe? Yeah, yeah. carnalitas, carnalatas. I know, I was just saying carnitas because they are so good. They are almost sexual. They're so, <laughs> so good. You're on the money, man. You're on the eel money because they believe that, the church that is, believe that eating meat, which they would, you know, define as like beef or sheep, et cetera, what have you, uh, was going to inevitably make a person kind of lusty, right? Kind of amorous. Yes. And why is that? Because... A creature that was created via sex would in some way in in inform your body or I don't know, symbolically make you get all horned up. Like I, that's the concept. Yeah, you're charged up. It's interesting too, because uh lest you think we're picking on Europe too much, the consumption of certain animal parts across the world has long been believed to increase libido, you know, like especially eating sexual organs of animals. For the church at this time, it was just enough that the animal was created through good old reproduction. And we know what you're thinking. Hey, guys, don't fish also reproduce? Don't they also kind of have a sexual union? Yes, fish reproduce, but the Catholic Church wasn't worried about that, probably because they couldn't walk to a nearby field and just see, you know, I'll say it, eels getting down, getting skinamaxed with each other the way they could see cattle. But think about what an eel looks like. Oh, yeah. Think, think about the touch of an eel. It's so slippery. <laughs> it's It's so, it's so very... Penis like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Just uh, I, you'd think I it'd be you. the opposite. Like, don't yeah. eat the eels, don't eat the eels. There's way too much sexual stuff going on there, mm-hmm. but no, it was, it was, it was the opposite of that. Yeah, I, you bring up a great point. It is, it is sort of weird for us to look back and say, like, hey, wasn't that one of the most phallic animals you could have allowed? <laughs> but, but instead, they were, they said, no. Nope, it's a Lent, and even if you're married, you need to be abstinent for this time. So meat is off the table because it might make you violate this spiritual system. Eating fish was thought to not excite the libido in any way at all, so you could have as much fish as you wanted. Eels were a great choice because they were everywhere, right? In Mm -hmm. the rivers, in the waterways, and eel pies were super, super popular. Uh, Eel pies are still a storied, if declining, tradition in the UK today. And that is because virtually every medieval European at the time believed that these fish reproduced asexually. And it's a very, very old belief system that dates back to Aristotle and the somewhat unique life cycle of the eel, which is ugly. Just for the record, I think they're ugly. But (laughs) 
they well, they probably think we're ugly too. Yeah, I'm sure they would get real, real weirded out by us if there was just some studying going on. I, I bet it's happened in the past. But the reproductive cycle of these eels really is fascinating. They would go out into the open Atlantic, the, the ocean there, and that is where they would breed. Then they would migrate to land, and this is when they're in a, a very small state, as a, a fairly new creature. So the young, the young essentially, called uh, elvers, this is a term I did not know, E-L-V-E-R-S, mm-hmm. and they're heading up the river. Uh, once they find a home that's, you know, somewhere amongst the river there, they stay and then they grow for over a decade, around a decade, until they eventually head back to the sea to get it on and then send their little young ones back up the river. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they die. Oh yeah, they they do die <laughs> after after coitus. No, uh, uh, just after doing it. After doing <laughs> it, they die. Uh, and Aristotle, very smart dude, right? He never made the connection between elvers, this juvenile form, and the grown form we call eels. So he wrote with. Uh, a lot of self-assurance that eels spring spontaneously out of the mud. And then other writers followed his example and said, that's it. They come, they come from the mud. This was so well established in the European zeitgeist that it persisted into at least the 1500s, maybe longer. And part of that was because if you look at an eel before it, you know, gets to its its final form you wouldn't normally see sexual organs. They only develop ovaries and testes at the very, very end of their lives, right before they head out for that fatal romantic encounter on the high seas. That's how they know they got to go. Like, <laughs> what? Oh, I got to go. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I got balls now. It's over for me. That's how, that's how it goes. That's so messed up that that's like their death sentence or their death cry. Or, I don't know. That's just so weird. It, or is it awesome? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's a great way to go, I suppose. <laughs> I like that optimism. Yeah, let's go with that. And so people were searching for eel ovaries and testes for centuries. It wasn't just Aristotle. We're not picking on just one guy. Sigmund Freud also looked and he couldn't find anything. So because these eels were not seen reproducing and because if you searched one of their bodies, you would not see anything that indicated they could reproduce, it's kind of understandable that they were like, I don't know, these weird things. They come from the mud, they go to the sea, you can pay rent with them. What's not to love? (laughs) Seriously. And it wasn't until 1777 that an Italian dude named Carlo Mondini actually located an eel ovary, and there was much rejoicing. So everybody thank that guy because he he made an important discovery Uh, that may sound kind of irrelevant today, but it was something that confused people for a very long time. And Sigmund Freud, just to clarify, he was specifically looking for eel testes. He he didn't find them. But so they knew. (laughs) Just imagine that. I could just see that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Just going out, getting another eel, just like holding it up, got a microscope. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, yeah. there's the testes. There's the testes. <laughs> yeah, it, it's got a paint, you know. Um, I, I imagine, I imagine Sigmund like being disappointed that he's known for his work in psychology. Yeah. And he's like, but I'm an eel man. I'm on the quest <laughs> for the balls. 
psychology is very secondary. But he would do a Reddit AMA and people would be asking him about Freudian theory. And mm-hmm, his response mm-hmm. would be like, hey, guys, can we keep our questions focused on eel testes, please? That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> please save all your questions unless they're about eels. There are no eel testes. They, they, they reproduce in a dream, a subconscious thought of another eel coming out of them. Mm-hmm. You Sorry. were nailing it, man. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was perfect. It's perfect. I want to read that Reddit AMA. Uh, so, <laughs> so this is the thing. Their unique position in religion and culture of the time helps us understand why paying eel rent remains such a long-lived practice even after coinage was a little more common. Most of the other in-kind rents had disappeared by the 13th century or so, but not eel rent. Landlords continued to collect that. From the 13th century, you can see records that show people are paying with eel, like more than 450,000 eels annually, and they were still making new ink and new deals that were all in eel. You're right. We are accidentally rhyming a lot on this. I should tell you, Matt, I think you missed it, um, but Max was there a few episodes ago. Noel got really close to freestyling. I think, really? I think, yeah, I think he's going to, I think I'm going to get him to do it. Some <gasps> yes. Can <laughs> we'll we see. finally, finally respond to the culture Kings? Shout out to them, man. They're good dudes too. And yes, they are. Yeah, they are. And uh, back to eels. Dr. Greenlee also has an explanation for the decline of this practice. The black death. Sorry, that's an unexpected heavy twist, but yeah, the Black Death. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool, I, yeah. I, I just remember, it was my dad's, I, I was a hand-me-down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something, you know? I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac, Bonneville, right? Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino, and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it so. The Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. 
Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, Noel, have you ever wanted to wake up to something better? Oh, boy, have I ever been. <laughs> well, uh, this is where Avalon Waterways comes in. How does waking up to a medieval castle, an ancient cathedral, a rolling vineyard, or a charming cobblestone village sound to you? Well, here on Ridiculous History, that's right up our street, Ben, our charming cobblestone street. So I can say it sounds pretty good to me. You're absolutely right, Noel. Avalon Waterways has redefined cruising in so many different ways. They've got the uh, widest opening windows. They've got beds that face the passing scenery. So wherever you go, you have a front row seat to the views of the world. And not only do you wake up in the best staterooms in the entirety of the business, but you're waking up in a new port every day, right in the heart of these amazing historic cities. Ah, Ben, sign me up. Open your eyes to a better view and a different kind of cruising. One with smaller ships, bigger experiences, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Yeah, I guess it was seen as a little less clean in a lot of ways, and uh, I, I can imagine that. Yeah, it wasn't until after 1349. Oh, what a great year, 1349. Mm -hmm. That's when red meat started to become way more available to people. And, you know, I would say probably became pretty exciting, given all the eel consumption over <laughs> the centuries. And at the same time, you know, the population was much lower after Black Death, and that meant there's way more currency per person out there, you know, floating around. So you can imagine that the, de the demand for eels overall began to drop. And around that time, there were only, I think, around 34,000 eels that were paid. That I don't know. How do you even say this? Eel rent was only paid <laughs> with 34,000 individuals. I don't know how to say this stuff, guys. Yeah, and so we see this precipitous decline, 450,000 eels, Every year during the 13th century or so, down to just 34,000 eels in the game <laughs> a go. little later. And then in the 15th century, in the 1400s, we see another huge drop. And by 1500, by the year 1500, which is a good one, but it doesn't stack up to 1349, to Matt's point. By 1500, eel rents had mostly disappeared, but not all the way. Nope. Nope. In the 1680s, there's this amazing mill in Norfolk that's still rented out for 30 pounds, but that's not all. 
and 60 eels. <laughs> oh, yeah. So good luck to you. You, <laughs> do you. Okay, I gotta ask the question. Like, yeah. can you like barter that? Can you like discuss that? Somebody like, hey, so I only got twenty pounds, but I got like ninety eels with me. It's non-negotiable. You, you not negotiable. Sixty eels. <laughs> you just have those exact measurements right there. Right. That's correct. They don't make eel change either. And like, and you can't have sixty-one eels because you have to pay for eel storage when you're there, oh, which right. costs two eels to store your eels. <laughs> right? There we go. It is weird, sixty eels, because that's two sticks. And a portion of another stick. Hmm. Mm, yeah. Weird. Two fifths of a stick. <laughs> two and two fifths. <laughs> sticks on sticks. Uh, Max, your questions are so astute that I feel like you've been in this hustle before. Uh, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to leave you just wondering a little bit. All right. Okay. No, I well, respect it. I respect <laughs> an enigmatic man. <laughs> but you make a really great point, Max, because there it was this family, the Wyndham family. Uh, that sounds so familiar. Mm-hmm. If you get off exit 11 here on Highway 400 and you'll find Wyndham, maybe it was their family. Oh, my God. Connecting dun, the dun, dots. Dun. <laughs> um, but they were of Felbrig Hall and they really did have a hard time collecting the payments because people weren't paying eel rents anymore. Sorry, we don't we didn't dry them this past autumn, you know, for Lent the way we were supposed to because of the whole naughty thing but yeah sorry we don't have any eels but we do have that 30 pounds right so they felt like what we can see from the windoms is uh they felt like you know they w- didn't want to change the old ways it is possible that this was a lent thing l-e-n-t for them but it may also be possible that they were super into eel pie this is where i'm gonna mm. diverge just for a second so I'm just sending you guys a picture over our Zoom call today about pie, mash, and eels. Pie, mash, and eel shops have been in London since at least the 1800s, and they serve stewed or jellied eels. I desperately want to try it out. What do you you guys want to describe the picture? The second one I said. I have these saved on my computer sometimes. (laughs) Max, go ahead. Oh man, Ben, you know, I like recently have been saying I'll try everything and oh, I, I, I'll try this with you, buddy, but this is, this is disgusting. It's like, Ugh. it looks like ice cream that went bad Ugh. and got like gooey on top and just, uh, Matt, take over. The <laughs> eel isn't the upsetting part. It's the jelly. jelly? It's the yeah. jelly. Yeah. It's just so slippery and it's just so gelatinously and, and, and tra- transparent. And you can seal the, e- you can see the eel bits in between the jelly parts. Y- yeah. But I do want, again, I do want to point out it comes with sides. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why that was the saving grace. It's a combo meal. What do the sides look like? Oh. Like nothing thus far is really that <laughs> appetizing. I'm pretty sure it's just parsley and lemon. Hey, well, you get mashed potatoes. You know what okay, I mean? Okay, mash. Yeah, you get mashed. You got- does the mashed potatoes look like that? <laughs> no. They cover it with the same sauce, though. I really want to try it. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry, guys. Uh, folks, uh, ridiculous historians, please uh, please check out Jelly Deals or let us know if you have had an experience with them. Uh, we'd like to hear your take. Here's the thing. Oh. <sighs> 
like you said, Matt, you, you were prescient when you talked about firewood, right? Payment and firewood carrying over to the early United States or the colonies. In the early days of what would become the U.S., people also liked old eel pie. They just didn't like paying eel rent. So today, sushi may be the most common use of eel in the U.S. Like we talked about at the very top, unagi. But if you go back just a few centuries ago, eel pie was the business. People were all about it. Uh, yeah. And we got some great info here from Libby O'Connell, who wrote The American Plate, A Culinary History in 100 Bites. And she's discussing just how big eel was everywhere. Uh, Cape Cod, it was huge, local streams all over the place. And they were so sought after. Imagine this, you guys. They were using lobsters as bait to catch the eels. What? <laughs> I mean, come on. I, you're you're going to tell me that you would... I, well, I guess, imagine jellied lobster. Like, I don't, I don't think that's much better. So if you're going to prepare your eels in that way, mm-hmm. um, really, you prepare anything in that way and you lose me. But the thought of using a lobster to catch an eel just frustrates me. Yeah, well, you know, back in the day, lobsters didn't have the same reputation they they enjoy in the modern age. And just to be clear here, that's because they were served to people, often disadvantaged members of society, in a really gross preparation. They weren't shelled. People didn't take the meat out. They crushed it all together and made it like this kind of gross, soupy thing. So delicious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you're fine as long as it's not jelly, huh? Yep. Uh, yeah. If it's crunchy, cool. Cool. <laughs> if it's slurpy in a not good way, mm, no thank you. Slurpy. I like <laughs> it. Uh, <laughs> yes. So this did turn into a little bit of a, a gross food episode for some people, but I, I definitely want to try this. Like you said, eels were a hot, hot commodity. But something happened. There was a decline in the supply of eels. They were no longer as plentiful as they were once upon a time, and this led to a decline of interest in savory eel pie. And over time, O'Connell notes, uh, people in the U.S. started to move away from eating animals consumed in their natural form. Like, for instance, a lot of us listening to the show today have never killed a chicken that we ate. We've never slaughtered a cow or dressed a deer. We've gone to a grocery store. We've gone to a restaurant or something like that. So O'Connell argues that maybe that's what happened. Maybe people got further and further away from the natural state of the creatures they were consuming. And the Smithsonian notes that eel has seen a resurgence in popularity driven by the rise of sushi, But that lack of supply, that dearth of supply continues to be an obstacle because today the eel has been classified as endangered on the International Union for Conservation's red list of threatened species. Because the seafood supply has run low in Asia, there's also been more poaching in the U.S., further depleting regional resources. You know, that makes a lot of sense if there aren't as many eel around and people are kind of changing their tastes. And Mm -hmm. then eventually the eel, you know, are protected. We're just not going to be eating them in the same way. Mm -hmm. But it does make me sad 
that there isn't some, even if it's not eel, that there's some kind of one-to-one like that that would be valuable enough. Like, I can't, there can't be a rat infestation in somebody's rental home, and then you take out all the rats, you get a stick of rats, and then you can use that to supplement your rent. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, you can imagine it kind of in the way like a pest control service would cost X amount of money. So you may be able to work that in if you're good, if you're a good negotiator. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not the same thing as having a stick of eels. Yeah, yeah. We would need a perfect storm of economic factors to make, to to create an animal that could be used as a widespread regional currency, right? We would need uh, cultural mores, that not more eels. eels. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Uh, we would need, we would need, yes, we'd need cultural more eels. Uh, we'd need some authority figures saying that there was some necessity behind a food stuff. And then we would also need uh, for, we would need for people to not reject the idea of eating it. Uh, it would also need to be plentiful. Uh, rats are plentiful, but people generally in the West, reject the idea of eating rats for sustenance. They're seen mostly as vermin, sometimes as pets, yep. but not as, not as like, you wouldn't eat a, okay, wait, no, it's, we're, we're toward the end of the week. I'll ask a weird question. Matt, Max, mm-hmm. given the choice, you had to eat one, would you eat an eel pie or a rat pie? Oh, eel pie. Yeah. Eel pie all day. <laughs> yeah. I worked in restaurants for like a decade. I know how disgusting rats are. Like, no, absolutely not. And I actually had some in a rental home that I lived in Mm. and caught around 38 rats. That's my my estimate. But here's my problem. And I think I may have told this story before. Mm. I'm kind of an idiot. I didn't understand how rats function and how adept they were at finding their way back. Even if you take them away a couple miles, I think. Oh, you didn't um, want to kill them. I did not want to kill them. They they weren't hurting me in any way. It was just gross. So I would trap them where, you know, it's a live trap where it just closes behind them after they go for that sweet, sweet peanut butter. And I would take them away. We There's a large airport near me. Mm-hmm. And I would release them kind of out into the wilds out there where there's no civilization, thinking, oh, well, they'll find a way to live over here. You know why I caught 38? Because I'm pretty sure I caught many of the same rats like three or four times. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the rats are going back and they're like, yeah, I got locked up for a second. (laughs) But I got sweet peanut butter. (laughs) I know. Dude, get the peanut butter. Oh, it's so worth it. This guy gives you peanut butter and he drives you back. (laughs) Wow, you might be a legend with those guys. Uh, Glad I moved out. Well, I'm glad you made it here too, Matt, uh, and I'm super glad you were able to join us on the show today. Ridiculous Historians, thank you for tuning in. We want to hear from you folks, especially if you've lived in the UK or you've visited. Have you tried eel pie and mash? Is it any good? I you know, I think our, our crew here is a little bit, um, collectively, we're a little bit dubious on whether or not this is worth a shot. Some people, not going to name names on the Zoom call, <laughs> might play it safe and get some fish and chips 
You know what I mean? Uh, and there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Those are delicious. But let us know what your experience is like. You can do that on our Facebook page, Ridiculous Historians. I think we may also have our email working, ridiculous at iheartmedia.com. Uh, Matt, it yes. feels it feels a, a, just a tad weird for me to ask you this because we do hang out pretty much all the time. Uh, but this is usually the point in the show where uh, we give our illustrious guests a second to talk about some of their own upcoming projects or where people can learn more about their work. Oh, well, sure. Of course, stuff they don't want you to know. I'm assuming everybody that listens to this show is aware of that one just because you and Noel host this one. I, I don't know. Maybe not. We talk uh, about you a lot. Okay, cool. Well, thanks. Wow, weird. No. Uh, but uh, stuff they don't want you to know. I would highly recommend this brand new show that our team is making with Tenderfoot TV. It's called Algorithm. It is out right now. Yeah, you'll be able to get, I think, three episodes by the time you're hearing this. Fantastic stuff. It's hosted by Ben Kiebrick, one of the producers on Monster of the Zodiac Killer and Monster DC Sniper, as well as Camp Hell and Awakey. That's hosted by Josh Thane, another one of the producers from those monster series. But this time they are hosting their own series, both true crime shows, both compelling as all heck and scary. Highly recommend both. And if you'd like to hear more about the history, culture, and strange science of food, do check out our peer podcast, Savor, which is hosted by Annie Reese and Lauren Vogelbaum. Thanks, as always, to our super producers, Casey Pegram and Max Williams over there, who will eat an eel pie with me if a rat pie is the only choice. Thanks to Gabe Luzier, our research associate, Christopher Hasiotis, Eves Jeffcoat, and, of course, Jonathan Strickland. I don't know his position on eel pie, but something tells me we will learn about it soon. No, I forgot to do that. Uh, Jonathan Strickland. No. Jonathan. Nope, nope, that's it. We're going. We're going. Uh, okay. See you next time, everybody. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest 
lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks. Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.